We're so glad you're tuning into this week's Rolling Hills Community Church Sermon Podcast. I'm Jason Hitchings, the Men's and Sports Director. This week, we're moving on to chapter 12 of the Gospel of Mark, pressing further into our Masterclass series. Today's message focuses on considering what it means to invest in God's kingdom. How does Jesus see our contributions of time and money into his kingdom? And what can he do with what we give over to him? Over the next half an hour, we'll explore Jesus' teachings on these things and more, and consider how to put them into practice. Thanks for tuning in. Well, have you ever had this happen in life where sometimes things kind of just don't go like you thought they should go? It just... They just, you, you had an expectation and it just didn't happen the way that you thought that would happen. And then on the flip side of that, sometimes we come in with zero expectation, a very low expectation, and our mind is royally blown because we were just not expecting anything at all. Some of y'all have had that experience at a Waffle House, for example. You know, you look at it from the outside and you think, oh, what really could be great about the food in there? And then you walk in and you realize this consistently delivers every time. I mean, you show me a better waffle and hash brown at that price point, I'll wait. Anybody? Say, I'm right. I mean, it's, it's, it's just consistently good. Now, on the flip side of that, sometimes there's a lot of hype connected to something, and it doesn't deliver. This happens all the time with movies. You know, the box office tells you, this movie is going to be incredible, and you watch it, and you're like, no, not so much. Back in the 90s, 1995, to be exact, there was this like three-and-a-half-hour epic movie starring Kevin Costner called Waterworld, and some of you guys saw it. There's like six of us that actually saw the movie. Um, <laughs> And it was like one of the most expensive movies ever made, $175 million, which was a lot now, but especially a lot back in 1995. It grossed like $80 million total, and it was just terrible. I mean, it was a disaster. It was boring. You know, it was not as epic as we thought, and, and, and yet all they did not live up to the hype. A couple years ago, I think it was 2019 to be exact, they decided to make a live-action version of the critically acclaimed musical Cats. Some of you guys saw it. There's like one of you that saw that. I'm not a film expert, but I could have told you. People aren't interested. They don't want to see cats in a live action uh, format. And again, it was one of the biggest flops of the last, you know, several years. We have those moments where something is hyped up and it doesn't live up to it. Or we have a massive expectation and it just simply doesn't deliver. They told some of you guys during your freshman year of college that that art degree would be really marketable. And it has yet to be marketable. You know, you've not had people knocking down your doors, you know, wanting to hire you as an artist, whereas no one ever told you to become a plumber. But yet you could have gone to work yesterday, you know, at a very lucrative career, so to speak. Why do I say all of this? I say all of this to get your mind wrapped around the fact that sometimes in life we have an expectation of something and it just, we're shown a different story. Or we come in and have zero expectation and God has something completely different that he wants us to do. We're studying the Gospel of Mark this summer. For those of you who are with us for the very first time, welcome. And we are 12 weeks into this series called Masterclass where we're looking at the Gospel of Mark. And what you see in the Gospel of Mark, particularly where we're headed today, in Mark chapter 12, Jesus shows us that he has a different set of rules. He has a different set of kind of norms. Jesus doesn't always follow the societal norms. In fact, he rarely follows the societal norms. He shows us that sometimes the people in the crowd that we would least expect to be fruitful for ministry are the most fruitful. And sometimes the ones that we would look at and say, yeah, they've really got it all together. Jesus, in fact, says, no, I want to show you a completely different picture. Jesus, many times, if we'll allow him to, will kind of 
change some of our perceptions and change some of our expectations. And so our goal today is to grow as disciples and to see what is it in his word that encourages us and challenges us to be who it is that he has called us to be. So just know that I'm so grateful that you're here with us today. A special welcome to all of you who are with us for the first time or maybe the second time. Just know that it means the world to us that you've come to visit with us today, and we hope that your experience today is really positive and that God speaks to you today through his word. And so with that said, why don't we pray together and just ask God to do what only he can do today in our midst. Lord, thank you for uh, this beautiful morning of life. I thank you for this room of people that you have assembled together. I know it's not by accident that any of us are here. And so I pray, God, that you would speak to our hearts today through your word, that you would strengthen us, that you would shape us, make us more and more like you. And if there's something today, God, that we aren't expecting to see, that you would show us that. Or maybe if there's some preconceived notion about what it is that you want to do in our life, that you would just um, strip that away today, God, and, and, and remind us that you are here and that you love us and that you have an incredible plan for our lives. So we thank you again for who you are. It's in the powerful name of Jesus Christ that we pray. Amen and amen. So we're studying Mark chapter 12, which means last week we were in Mark chapter 11. Fancy that. Chapter 12 uh, follows chapter 11. But Mark chapter 11 ends with the Pharisees, who were a group of really religious people. If you're new to all of this, they were a group of very religious people. They thought they were better than everybody else. They were trying to always back Jesus into a corner. They were Jews. They knew the Old Testament forward and backwards, and they were missing that Jesus was the Messiah. And so they come to Jesus many, many times questioning his authority. And so if you're new with us again today, what you have missed the last 11 weeks is 11 consistent weeks of Jesus claiming his authority. And he is saying, I am the Messiah. God sent me. I come under, uh, you know, I come in the name of God. I come as the Messiah, as the one that Jesus, that God has sent to change the world. And so with no exception, chapter 12 gives us a little bit of the same, where these uh, Pharisees and these religious leaders question, is Jesus really who he says he is? So pick up with me in Mark chapter 12. I'm going to read verses 1 through 11. If you have a Bible, you can turn there. You're going to see these words up here on the screen. If you want to hop on one of your mobile devices and follow along with me on the Bible app, Mark chapter 12, verses 1 through 11. So Jesus then began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard. He put a wall around it. He dug a pit for the wine press, and he built a watchtower. And then he rented the vineyard to some farmers and moved to another place. And at harvest time, he sent a servant to the tenants to collect from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. But they seized him, beat him up, and sent him away empty-handed. And then he sent another servant to them. They struck this man on the head and treated him shamefully. He sent still another, and that one they killed. He sent many others. Some of them they beat, others they killed. And he had one left to send, a son, whom he loved. He sent him last of all, saying, They will respect my son. But the tenants said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let's kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. So they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What then will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and kill those tenants and give the vineyard to others. Haven't you read this passage of scripture? The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this, and it is marvelous in our eyes. So in verse 1, Jesus begins to speak to them. And who are the them? You know, who is he speaking to? He's speaking to the chief priests, the Pharisees. It's the same group that we ended with in chapter 11. And he tells them a parable. And a parable, simply put, is a story. It's an illustration. Uh, It's not necessarily a true story. It's a a figurative story uh, where Jesus is using it to, uh, as an object illustration, he's teaching these chief priests and these Pharisees uh, something that, that he wants them to get. And some of the best ways to help somebody understand 
understand something is what? Through a story. And so he, Jesus is uh, obviously the best storyteller of all time. And so he points them to this, to this story about an owner of a vineyard. And he says there was this owner of the vineyard, and what he decides to do is to lease out his vineyard to a group of other farmers. And so these other farmers are tending to the vineyard. It comes time for harvest. The guy who owns the field says, you know, I want some of the grapes from the vineyard now. And so he sends a servant to go get some of the grapes from the vineyard that he owns, keep in mind. And instead of bringing back grapes, the servant brings back a black eye. He gets beat up and they say, no, we're not going to give you any grapes. Go back. He sends a second servant. The same thing happens to him. He sends a third servant, go get the grapes. And instead of coming back at all, this guy gets killed. And it says in verse 5 that more and more people went. And I'm thinking, if I'm person 4, 5, and 6 in this parable, no thank you. You know, this is only getting worse for the people who go and ask for the owner's uh, grapes, so to speak. But then it says that the owner of the vineyard sends the one person that he has left, and that's his son. And his son goes to get the grapes as well, but also doesn't come back with anything. He is also killed. He's sacrificed there at the vineyard. Now, if, again, this is an illustration. This is a story that Jesus is telling. If you have any familiarity with another story in the Bible where a father sent his son and his son was sacrificed and killed, if you're connecting some of those dots right now, you're on the right page. This is an illustration that Jesus is using to teach the chief priest about what God has done for all of humanity through his son, Jesus Christ. If I were to kind of be able to wheel out a big whiteboard this morning, the way the story goes is that the owner of the vineyard represents God. And the farmers who are tending to the vineyard, those represent the Israelites. That represents God's chosen people who missed what God was doing. The servants who come to begin with, those represent the prophets, the ones that God sent to say there is one coming who will prepare the way, who will make everything right. They didn't believe those servants. And then ultimately God sent his one and only son. He's in the midst of humanity. And what does humanity do? They put him to death. And so this is an illustration that Jesus is using to show the chief priests and the Pharisees the error in their ways. That God has been working in your midst and you've just chosen not to see it. Why? Because you're looking for a different kind of Messiah. I've said this several times throughout this sermon series, but the people of the first century, they were not looking for a servant Messiah. Because who did we get? We got a baby that was kicking and screaming <laughs> and grew up for 30 years and ultimately had a this ministry that was marked by love for the outcast and marked by sacrificial giving to the point of death, even death on a cross, they were expecting a really militant Messiah, a warrior type of Messiah. And so Jesus is using this illustration to help them see, I'm in your midst. Others have been telling you what's going to happen and you're missing it all together. They would have gotten that Jesus was talking about them. In fact, it says it. They realized Jesus is talking about them. It's kind of like at work when your boss stands up and says, we really need to be at work on time. We really need to get our expense reports in on time. And you're, you're hoping that Jenny's paying attention because you're like, he's talking about you. You know, Jenny, or maybe he's talking about me. You know, it, there, there's, there's something that we need to catch. And of all of the people, this audience, the them, they should have gotten it but they missed it. Why? Because they were always questioning the authority of Jesus. 
Is Jesus really who he says he is? They didn't see Jesus that way. And so this morning, if you want to follow along and, and maybe reflect upon some of these notes, I'm going to give you some notes that you can fill in on that worship guide that you were given. You, of course, don't have to, but I have a very short attention span, so I'm always happy to have something to write down. And so maybe that's ha- that helps you and you can reflect upon it a little bit later on in the week. But there we see uh, this kind of first truth that I want us to reflect on this morning is that the authority of Jesus is never questionable, though many question it. The authority of Jesus is never questionable, though many question it. Because what does Jesus say? Jesus says that he's the cornerstone, that the son who was sent, the son that was killed, was the cornerstone, the cornerstone of faith. And a cornerstone, you know, from an architectural perspective, is the first stone that is laid, and everything is built around that stone. And so in this parable, Jesus is saying, you can question the authority, you can question my authority all you want, but it doesn't diminish the fact that God has sent me to be the Savior of all mankind. And the Lord God has done this according to verse 11, and it's marvelous in our eyes. You and I can wake up every morning if we choose to, and we can question the authority of Jesus morning, noon, or night, and it does not diminish the fact that he is God's son. And you have people in your life right now that are questioning the authority of Jesus. Can Jesus really be trusted? Can Jesus be trusted with everything in my life? Is he fully God? Is he fully man? I mean, for example, if you don't have anybody in your life right now that's questioning Jesus, expand your scope of people. In fact, be with some people who are far from Jesus. And how should you respond to them? If you have people in your life right now that are questioning the authority of Jesus, you just keep living out Jesus in front of them. And what's going to happen is over time, they're going to see that authority lived out in you. And they're going to hear it in your words, and they're going to see it lived out. We don't have to convince people of the authority of Jesus. That is a cornerstone truth. Whether you accept it or not, Jesus is the authority. And it's sometimes up for debate, but it doesn't have to be. But when you and I actually live like he's the authority on all matters, what happens? The world takes note. And when our actions begin to match up with our words, then the unbelieving world notices that and they want to know more about who has changed our life. I mean, for example, what do people notice more, your words or your actions? If I were to stand up here and say, I love you guys, each and every one of you are so important to me, I'm so grateful that I get to be your pastor, and and that's true, and I hope you believe that, but let's just say on Tuesday, for example, I'm at Outlanders for lunch, and you come into Outlanders, and you tap me on the shoulder, and you say, hey, Pastor Jason, and I say, "Mm, please don't speak to me on Tuesdays. (laughs) I only love you on Sundays. Everything, that action erodes everything else that you've ever heard me say because it doesn't match up. Jesus is trying to get his disciples, he's trying to get his hearers, he's trying to get us today to understand that we live under his authority, we speak his authority, and when those two come together, that's when we have these incredible moments of ministry. And hold that thought because he's going to come back to this. He's going to come back to show us precisely how we do that. Newsflash, it's called love, but hang on to that. We're coming back to that. When love is kind of what we are known for. But he continues on by teaching a few more things here. And in the essence of time, I just cannot, do not have the time to unpack everything in Mark chapter 12. But he goes on to tell uh, his disciples that they ask him, do we have to pay taxes? He says, yes. Um, I wish Jesus would have given us a pass on that one. Um, 
Then he proceeds to, they ask him these questions. The Pharisees say, well, will we be married in heaven? And Jesus says no to that. And some of you are like, what? We won't be married in heaven? See, heaven is perfect. Heaven, at, at, at that place, you will not be sad by anything. Now, in some cases, my expectation would have been, Jesus, it would have been great if you would have said no taxes on earth and marriage in heaven, opposed to the other way around. But heaven is a beautiful picture. It, the, the marriage relationship here on earth is representative of Christ and the church. When Jesus returns, we are restored to what God intended for us to originally be. And so it'll be a beautiful place. No illness, no pain, no sin. Love will obviously be what everything is known for there. And so do I believe that you'll love your spouse and know them? Absolutely. But there's no need for that relationship anymore. And so Jesus is just teaching people and these, these chief priests time and time again. And you would think by this moment in time that the teachers of the law would just stop with their questioning. Oh, but wait, there's more. <laughs> Verse 28, one of the teachers of the law came and heard them debating. Noticing that Jesus had given them a good answer, he asked him, of all the commandments, which is the most important? And the most important one answered Jesus is this, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. And the second is this, love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. Well said, teacher, the man replied, you are right in saying that God is one and there is no other but him to love him with all your heart, with all your understanding, and with all your strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself is more important than all the burnt offerings and the sacrifices. So Jesus, again, is showing them who he is. He's showing him at the heart of what it means to be a disciple. And so when the chief priest asked him, what are the most important commands? What are the most important things that we should be living under? What should we be following right now? Jesus answers by quoting the Shema. And the Shema is recorded in Deuteronomy 6, 4 and 5. And what the Shema is, is it was a, it was a kind of a guiding prayer, a, the most central of prayers to the ancient Israelites. And they would quote this prayer daily. And, and at the heart of the prayer is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And that phrase, the Lord is one, is so significant because the Israelites struggled with the worship of lots of little g gods. And so this is God's way of saying, I am one. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And then Jesus adds to that, loving God and loving people are really at the heart of what it means to be understanding the most important of the important commandments. And so you see this here in your notes, but no attitude or action is going to more closely align me with Jesus than love. If you were to say, Pastor Jason, how can I become more like Jesus? That is the easiest question that I know how to answer. Increase in love. If you want to be more and more conformed to the image of Jesus Christ, then realize what he has done for you and accepting him, putting your faith and trust in him, loving him, growing in that relationship with him, and then as a byproduct of that, growing in a relationship with others. And I promise you, when your love for God and love for people is always increasing, when that's always on display, people will take note of that. And they'll wonder, why are you different? And they'll have questions about, or they'll have understanding all of a sudden, many of them for the first time about, I think this authority thing is real. That Jesus is who he really says he is. Look at John 13, 35. Because this was to the disciples right before Jesus died. <clears throat> this is the new command that he gives them. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you, say it with me, love one another. It's the litmus test. 
People will really know that you are a disciple of Jesus Christ if you love one another. And I think if we spent half the time loving God and loving others like Jesus commanded, opposed to arguing or opposed to debating or opposed to any number of things that are not loving, our Rolodex of influence would be huge. And the scope of ministry that could happen in our midst would be huge. And I'm talking about genuine love here. I'm not talking about kind of this ooey-gooey, I love you because you can do something for me. in return, because that's not love, but it's a love that's truly unconditional. And I'm not asking you to go out of this place and validate everybody's decisions. I'm not asking you to go out here and say, okay, well, just because, you know, you're, you're, you're living a life of sin, and as a result of that, he, he's asking me to just say everything you're doing is right. That's not what I'm saying at all. But lest we do forget that all of us are sinners, only saved by the grace of God. And it's by his grace that we are saved and we are made whole. So I'm not asking you to go out and validate everything that you see, but I am asking you to go out and live like Jesus Christ because what did Jesus Christ do? He said, there is nothing that I am unwilling to do in love to the point of death, death on a cross because he loved mankind. And that's what he asks us. That's what he's encouraging us to be. That's part of this master class is to grow and love, loving people like Jesus, living that out, speaking that truth boldly through the power of the gospel. Now, next Sunday, you're in for a real treat, so you don't want to miss next Sunday, because this baptistry behind me is going to be filled, and and there's uh, a couple adults that we're going to be baptizing, and they're going to be baptized by a family member whose name is Ken. And this is what you need to know about Ken. Ken and his family, um, unfortunately, don't live here in Tennessee anymore. I wish that they still did, but they're coming back uh, next week to uh, perform this baptism. And here's what you need to know about Ken. When Ken first started attending Rolling Hills, he was very far from God. And his wife was a believer, and he was coming to church to appease her. And uh, he would tell you, I mean, Ken is is and still is, brilliantly smart, holds a PhD in some science that I can't even understand, um, or pronounce more or less. And he will tell you that one of his goals in his doctoral program was to refute the claims of other Christians. And he would hear people talking about Jesus, and he could outscience you, he could outwit you, and he would say, I found great joy in debunking all of these things that people would talk about from a faith perspective. But Ken kept coming to church, and people kept loving him, and people kept sharing with him, people kept treating him, you know, just like any of us would desire to be treated. And Ken had a moment in his life where he kind of hit rock bottom, and he realized that he had been searching for hope in literally everywhere but Jesus, and he turns to Jesus, and Jesus radically changes his life. He gives his heart, control of his life to Jesus. We baptized him at the elementary school where we used to meet as a church. And now he's coming back next Sunday to baptize two of his family members who have publicly made a proclamation to follow Jesus. This is what I've learned from Ken. I was not smart enough to convince Ken of the authority of Jesus, nor were you. There were none of us that could set down knee to knee with him and convince him of the authority of Jesus. But because of the words of the gospel, the power of the Holy Spirit, a commitment to God's word, loving actions, and just simply being hands and feet of Jesus to Ken. Ken said, that's what I want. And I cannot help but believe that there are a lot of Ken still out there. And what do you and I have the opportunity to do? We have the opportunity to step into their lives and to allow the power of the gospel to be boldly proclaimed while the actions of love match up with what it is. And you and I have to make a conscious decision to say, that's what I want my life to be about. 
That's what I want my ministry to look like. Now, this goes without saying, but we will never do that. We will never live that kind of life if we don't get this one part right. And this one part, it's, it's huge. Don't miss it. And Jesus addresses it here. But I want to give you the point first and then read you a couple verses. You will not go closer to God by putting yourself in the center. Period. If you want to grow close to God, then you've got to say, you know what? The center, the center stage is not for me. <laughs> the point of priority, the person that's most important, it's not me. And I've got to remove myself from that situation and say, in order to grow closer to God, I've got to make him and other people central. So go with me to verse 38. Again, this is Jesus talking. And he taught them and he said, watch out for the teachers of the law, because they like to walk around in flowing robes and be greeted with respect in the marketplaces and have the most important seats in the synagogue and the places of honor at banquets. They devour widows' houses and for a show, they make lengthy prayers. These men will be punished most severely." Now, again, this was the group of people that could have been really close to God had they not made life all about themselves. They were attention-seeking. They wanted the place of priority. They wanted to walk into a room and say, look at me. Notice me. Look how nice this long, flowing robe is. Listen to how eloquent this beautiful prayer is. But they had this mentality of life is all about them. They had this mentality of they were more important than everyone else. And if we're not careful, we can fall prey to this so easily. Because it's running rampant in our culture right now. Epic proportions where we tend to just kind of make life all about us. And say, everything is about me. It's in arrogance and it's foolish thinking to believe that God's going to be honored by arrogance and condescension. It's just foolish thinking to think that God's going to be honored by me saying that I'm better than everyone else. And so what should our operating system be? Our operating system is say, I'm going to love well. I'm going to boldly proclaim the truth. I'm going to love well, and I'm going to let it be enough to serve others and to love others and to point others to Jesus Christ. And you may never get a reward for that here on earth because that's not what we expect greatness to look like, is it? I mean, we have this expectation that the greatest among us probably look like the chief priests and probably look like the Pharisees. And Jesus said, no. If you live that kind of faithful life, you may never be a person of influence on social media. You may never get invited to walk across a stage so that we can give you a big award. Nobody may ever ask you to come onto their podcast to hear what you have to say. But if you live a life of faithfulness, people will be recounting your faithful way of living long past your life. Because fame and fortune and money and all those things, they are very fleeting. But faithfulness is not. Faithfulness is the long haul. Faithfulness remains. Now, I I can see in some of your faces that y'all aren't convinced. So let's keep going with this. Who was smarter, the chief priest or the disciple Peter, for example. You get the chief priest who knew the Old Testament law forward and backwards. Or then you've got Peter, who was a fisherman turned disciple, and he had kind of like crusty earthworms under his fingernails. This is just not a, not a guy that you put on marketing material, so to speak. Who was smarter? Obviously the chief priest. But who really got it? Peter. I mean, so much so that Peter, the very one who denied even knowing Jesus, is referred to as the rock of the church. Upon Peter, this church will be built. How many of the chief priests' name do you even know? They go down in history, not even by name. They go down in history as the group of people that should have gotten it, but they didn't. 
They go down in history as the ones that Jesus says they're going to be severely punished. So let it be enough to say, I want to be faithful. I want to be faithful to the call that Jesus has placed on my life. And that means with my time, that means with my words, that means with my resources, that means with my actions, that means with everything that he has put in front of me. To just simply be faithful and to trust that God will work in the ways that he wants to work. Go with me to verse 41, because again, Jesus gives us one more snapshot, one more snapshot of what it really means to to be all in, to be invested in the things that he would desire. So Jesus sat down opposite the place where the offerings were put, and he watched the crowd putting their money into the temple treasury. And many rich people threw in large amounts. But a poor widow came, and she put in two very small copper coins, worth only a few cents. Calling his disciples to him, Jesus said, Truly I tell you, this poor widow has put more into the treasury than all the others. They all gave out of their wealth, but she, out of her poverty, put in everything, all that she had to live on. So Jesus is sitting in this temple complex, and this offering, the moment of offering, takes place. And the wealthy crowd comes, and they kind of have some pomp and circumstance so that everybody sees how much they're giving. Because we have more than anybody else, and so we are to be celebrated because we have more than you do. Momentary applause. And then the widow comes up who drops in two coins. And what Jesus says is it's all that she literally had. And Jesus calls all the disciples together, and he says, that's what I'm looking for right here. It's that act of obedience. It's that act of obedience from a place of poverty. She literally gave all that she said. So how about me and, and how about you? Are, are you willing to give all for the sake of Christ? Are you willing to, to be you know, all in, to say, I want to give all for the sake of Christ? Or do you want to hold back? Or do you kind of want to be halfway in? Or do you want to give all for the sake of Christ? I could tell you story after story of people who have given all for the sake of Christ. And the story that's most on my mind, probably because I'm headed back down to the Amazon next week, um, but I've had a privilege to go down to the Amazon in Brazil to work with um, a lot of our pastors through our pastors training conference through Justice and Mercy International. And Justice and Mercy International is a nonprofit that our church started uh, several years ago. And one of the major arms of what we do is to equip local pastors and to equip the church in the Amazon region of Brazil. And uh, it's been a couple years since I've had a chance to go down and be with some of our pastors there. Um, But I'm so excited about going. And um, just for context purposes, uh, the conference isn't until, you know, like over a week away yet. But some of the pastors are literally traveling as we speak to get to this conference. I mean, that's just how far from so many remote parts of the country, of the region that that they come from. Because they don't have roadways. They have waterways, you know. And so they're on boats. And it's just, it's, it's amazing. Um, but every time I go, um, you know, you kind of go as the person trying to equip and trying to help, and you walk away realizing how far you have to grow (laughs) and how much of your own faith journey you need to grow in. But the last time that I was there, uh, my wife Jacqueline and I had a privilege to go together, and part of the process of the conference is we interview every ministry leader that's there. We give them like a 20 to 30 minute face-to-face interview with a translator, and we ask them questions about how things are going, how can we be praying for them. And uh, we had the privilege of interviewing uh, a ministry leader. She was a leader in her church, and her name was Deborah. And Deborah was sharing with us about some of the things she was excited about and uh, what was happening in, in their church. 
And uh, the church where she was leading in, they, um, they were in the process of building a, a new building because God was doing something in this little village that, that, that Deborah was serving in and her and this other team. And, and so in, in classic, let's don't let all the obstacles get in the way, they started a church and they had nowhere to meet. So they met in the best possible place they could find, which was outside. And they brought chairs from their houses and they started meeting. And so Deborah was talking about how people were coming to faith in Christ. And she said, but one of our challenges is it's really hard to meet when it rains. And I don't know if you know this, but it rains a lot in the rain forest. Um, So this is a big obstacle for them. And so they were starting the process of building a church. And so Deborah said, we've raised enough money to pour the concrete slab. And we have a little concrete slab that we are... um, you know, that we're meeting on now. And I'm sitting there thinking, this is amazing and this is awesome. And so then Deborah starts talking to the translator. um, And I could realize that there was more to the story. And so the translator looks at Jacqueline and I, and she said, I want to tell you what Deborah said. And I was so profoundly moved by this statement. I I had to write it down because I don't want to misquote what Deborah said. And Deborah was talking about how excited they were to have this concrete slab. And she said, and I quote, Now when we meet to pray, we don't have to pray with our knees in the mud anymore. And it was something about the faith and the visual and this picture of, of this faithful group of believers who were so excited to have a concrete slab to when they would go to pray, they would say, when we used to come to pray, we had to kneel in the mud because that's what we had. But now we have a concrete slab so that we don't get muddy when we kneel to pray. And I heard that story, and I have thought so many times about Deborah and that group as we're building a building here. I've thought about Deborah and uh, the other pastors and leaders in this precious little congregation. And I've thought to myself, you know, the world would look at Deborah and say, hmm. But I think Jesus looks at Deborah and says, here's your pedestal. Well done good and faithful servant. You're never going to see Deborah in a documentary. She's never going to be given an award. She's never going to be rich according to the world standards. But I look at her life and I think she gets it. She really gets what it's about to be all in for Jesus because the foregone conclusion is she said, we're going to be a people of prayer. And a people of prayer meaning even if we don't have a place that's built, we're going to go kneel with our knees in the mud and plead on the behalf of our village that God would come and do something that can only be described by him. So what that's showing me and what that should show you is that it's all about our heart. And it's all about the place that we start because see, above all, Jesus is concerned with the condition of my heart. It's the point of the story with the widow who brought the two copper coins. Jesus is saying, it's a heart issue. I want you to be concerned more about the condition of your heart than what you can bring. Jesus isn't concerned with all the skills that you have. Jesus isn't concerned because you have more or I have less or whatever the case might be. And so if you have a little, which is a lot of us, then be faithful with a little. And if you have a lot, which is also a lot of us, be faithful with a lot. And if you have somewhere in the middle, which is a lot of us, be faithful with whatever you've got. It doesn't matter how rich or how poor or how significant or insignificant you might be. Jesus is looking at our heart and saying, will you be faithful with everything that I have done? See, your heart is always the primary concern for Jesus. And it's almost too hard for us to believe because the world would beg to differ. 
And the world says it's all about the actions and the activities and all the things that you can do. The way of Jesus is sometimes laughable by the world's standards. But oh, isn't it powerful when you put it into practice? It's so powerful when you put it into practice. So it's irrelevant how much you have, but rather it's the attitude of the heart. And the attitude of the heart that when you bring it and say, I'm really willing to give all for the sake of the glory of God. So perhaps there's an area of growth for you this morning. I don't know what it is. I know that there's some areas of growth for me. Maybe it's an area of growing in humility. Or maybe it's an area of growing in faith. Or maybe it's an area of growing in generosity. Maybe it's an area of growing in uh, faithfulness. Maybe it's an area of growing in serving. Whatever the case might be, Jesus wants us to experience the fullness of life in him. And that doesn't happen by following anyone's agenda but his. And so my prayer this morning is that we'll commit to do that, to follow his agenda, to follow it as what he desires to do, to allow him to be the authority on all matters and so that we can be the faithful servants that he has called us to be. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you for this time together. We're grateful for who you are. I thank you for your word and I thank you for the power that we experience in your word. And God, today is all about you. It's not about us at all. God, we don't want to ever proclaim that anything is about us, but we want to make our lives about you and boldly proclaiming you to others and sharing the message of the gospel and sharing the ways that you have changed us to a world around us. So we're grateful, God, that you are here and that you're working. And I pray if there's an area of growth in our life right now that you would make that abundantly clear and give us the just the wherewithal and give us the courage um, to give all for you as we respond to you today, as we reflect upon you. We're just grateful again, God, for you meeting us here. And it's in the powerful name of Jesus Christ that we pray and ask all these things. Amen. Thank you for checking out our Rolling Hills Sermon Podcast, part of the Rolling Hills Podcast Network. If you enjoyed this sermon, make sure to share it with loved ones and subscribe so you can tune in each time we release a new sermon. Don't forget to check out our other awesome content like the Making History Parenting Podcast, Men's Leadership Network, and the RH Women's As You Go Podcast. If you're interested in learning more about Rolling Hills, go ahead and download our app, follow us on social media, or visit our website at rollinghills.church. We'll see you next time.